Greetings and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. As you know, we get together here every week and discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. It's the Business of Agriculture, and I'm so glad you're here. Today, we're going to talk about something that I'm probably more excited about than I have been in years. I mean, like when I won the Heritage Days tricycle race in 1974, I was excited. When I got three uh, eggs with with stars on them in the Easter egg hunt at Memorial Park when I was a little boy, I was excited. I'm probably more excited now than I was at those two junctures of my life because my new book, Food Fear, is hot off the presses. Food Fear, how fear is ruining your dinner and why you should celebrate eating is now in my possession. I've been autographing and sending out books the last two days. I'm so excited. I want you to hear about this book and we're going to talk about the issues that it addresses because if you are in the business of agriculture, you are dealing with a consumer base that is afraid. They're afraid of what they don't know. They think they know stuff because they've tuned into Dr. Oz. They think that they know what they're eating, and then they say things like, I just want to know how my food is raised. This book, Food Fear, addresses all of that and more. We talk about food fights, talk about food fads, talk about finickiness, talk about farming and the history of farming, the history of what it's done for society. Talk about farmers and the reality of some numbers. We talk about cheap food and the uh, the plight that that's put us in. And we talk about food of the future and what happens. Joining me in this episode of the Business of Agriculture is my friend and confidant and occasional helper, Nicole Hahn. Nicole was my first read. If you've ever written anything and you've ever done anything that's a creative process, you know, you, 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 you're into it and it's your thing. But what happens is you realize I'm just one person and I might be looking at this with uh, uh, my own eyes. I need someone else to see it. Now, maybe Picasso didn't need somebody to tell him that his art was was done right. Uh, but I look at what I do and say, I think this makes sense. I think this sounds good, but I need a f- set of fresh eyes. So Nicole has a background in media and editing. So she was my first eyes and she helped me by being a first read and to help me clean up and clear up some of the stuff in Food Fear. So Nicole, welcome to the Business of Agriculture. Thank you very much. I know it was a long intro, but I wanted to make sure I set the set the whole precedent. Folks, if you are sticking with me here, please do stick with me. We're not pitching you on this book. Yes, I'd like you to buy it, but I more want to tell you what's in it and how it can help you, again, in the business of agriculture. So, Nicole, you were there. I'm cranking on it this this uh, year in the springtime, and I'm coming up with chapters. It started off as going to be a book just for my ag people. And then you were there, and I said, no, you know what? This is a book for everybody. It's for my ag people, and it's also straight talk about the industry of food production that we can share with our consumers because they need this message as badly as anybody. Your first take. You you started reading manuscript. What'd you think? I thought it was really interesting that it did not take the total farmer angle because consumer all, your consumers, everyone eats. And this is about food. And this is about food information and misinformation, which there is a lot of. And I loved being the first read and going through it with you and learned some things myself. Yeah, that's the challenge. I mean, I even learned stuff in doing research. I mean, I didn't just go to I didn't just go down to the computer and say, "Hey, I'm gonna type everything I know." I'm I'm um, humble enough to know that there's a bunch of things that I didn't know. So I took essentially the angle here was a, an agricultural economics guy who's a farm boy and farm owner who's also got a business mind who travels around North America every week. I'm saying, all right, 
what would I tell our consumer? And so you're listening to this saying, hey, wait a minute. I maybe do need to have this book. And I'll tell you why. You're the farm person that's going to be at a party this holiday season. And they're going to say, oh, he's a farmer. Or he sells chemicals. Or he's in the seed business. And then somebody's going to come up and say, and they don't mean anything generally. They're probably not really aggressive, although a couple people might be. Hey, is it true that my kids' feet are big because of the hormones they're giving the cows, and that's why we shouldn't drink milk? And you're going to say, no, that's not true. In fact, uh, most of the milk on the market is now, uh, <laughs> is now not allowed to have uh, RBST in it. You know, you're going to hear this. Um, I kind of wanted to go that angle on the book where I started saying, wait a minute, I think that we just have a lot of customers that are afraid. You read this, Nicole. Mm-hmm. Did I hit a nerve? I don't think so. I think... I think you will with some people. I think some people will take exception with a little bit of it. But the best part for me was there are facts to back up everything you talk about in this book. I mean, when you're talking about GMOs, when you're talking about diets, when you're talking about gluten, you have all these facts to back up what you're saying. And it will probably hit a couple people and because they've been thinking wrong for a long time. All right, so you started reading through the manuscript. Besides cleaning up some things from an editorial standpoint, uh, you also then said, hey, this isn't clear to me. And uh, like, for instance, I remember I have a thing in there about cover crops. I talk about the fact that I believe in the future we merge our methods, meaning I see a time when we take the best practices of organic farming, the best practices of conventional farming, and some new technologies we've not even employed yet, and we'll get so much better by the earth. We'll do so much better by the environment with our food production. And I talked about cover crops and you said, explain this to me. Those are the kind of things that a farm person knows. And you, of course, were saying, what the heck are you talking about? What else do you remember specifically that you learned? Well, one of the biggest things that I learned had to do with diets and what this country, the people in this country spend on diet plans. I was shocked to see how much it was. And then how you compared it to other countries was just amazing to me. So for the listener, uh, the neat part is it's a 63 chapter book with three sub chapters. So I'm purposefully appealing to your ability to read this in chunks. You know, you can just sit down on the toilet or at night when you're ready for bed. And if you want to read one chapter, it's going to take you like seven minutes, maybe 10, whatever. It's it's honestly, it's 63 chapters. Well, a chapter that I have is about diets. Because I've always said the one thing about Americans, they're not willing to put their, <laughs> they put their money where their mouth is. And what I mean is they put their money into this $66 billion a year is spent on the weight loss industry. $66 billion is spent in the United States on the weight loss industry. And the point that I make is there are 150 nations on the planet. So just think about that. 150 nations on planet Earth whose entire economy is not $66 billion. 150 countries where people live and work every day don't have an entire GDP that matches our spending on weight loss. So that's pretty remarkable. It was extremely remarkable to me. A little sad. A little sad, sure. And so uh, other things that you liked about it, okay, cover crops, you know, we, we talked a little bit about farming. I remember specifically I told you that, you know, the GMO thing, that argument gets everybody whacked out, and I pointed out that, that actually it reduces trips across the field, reduces carbon footprint, and it's got a lot of benefits. Most people don't know that. Right. They thought it was all done just because of yield. There's actually other reasons from an efficiency standpoint and a resource-saving standpoint. 
And I like that you were able to explain it to me so we could put it in the book. So someone like me who doesn't come from a farm background can read this and understand it and read through it. And I was able to look at that and say, okay, I don't really understand that. So maybe your average person won't. And that's why I like this because it is for everybody. And it's explained so that any person, anyone who eats can read this book and should read this book from my perspective. Um, Because it's just, it's really interesting. Like you said, it's easy to digest because they're short chapters and they're to the point and there's facts to back things up and it's it's a it's an easy read dear listener did you notice that nicole was talking about a book that's about food and says it's easy to digest and she didn't even realize she was being so quippy <laughs> like that uh seven sections the sections uh dear listener first one fads fear and finickiness and you're saying all right what's that mean well we, we know about fear. That's the title of the book. We know that people are afraid of their food. Now, you might be saying, no, no, I don't think that people are afraid of their food. B.S. You hang around enough folks, and you do like I do, where you listen to folks in restaurants because you're there eating by yourself because you're traveling like I do, and you'll overhear somebody say something like, well, I don't even know. If, I just had at this conference that I was at last weekend, uh, they were not agricultural people. I had two people and they were talking about the evils of McDonald's. And then the one woman said, I don't even think there's potatoes in their French fries. <laughs> I don't even. And, and at first I thought she was uh, just be it. And then I thought, no, sh- she's serious. Oh. I don't even think there's pota- there are potatoes in McDonald's French fries. And I said, uh, you'd be pretty amazed. In fact, I said the last article I read, I think they're the number one consumer of potatoes in North America, maybe in the world. And I, I know that I've read a stat similar to that. So you've got a consumer base out here that thinks that we're poisoning them, that thinks that we're dumping chemicals on them. And then presumably some of them think that we're giving them French fries that aren't even made from <laughs> potatoes. <laughs> All right. So what struck you in the first section, fads, fear, and finickiness? Of course, uh, listeners, I'm talking about the finicky nature, and the, the the point there is very simple. The more affluent a country is, the more affluent a consumer base is, the more choosy they can be. And it's one thing to say, oh, well, I'm choosy. I don't really like olives, because Damien Mason doesn't like olives. But we've gotten to where finickiness has taken on a whole new realm of, I can't have lactose. <laughs> well, that's maybe not even true. It's just that you've decided you don't want to, or you think it's more fun to go and spend nine dollars for lactose-free soy milk or whatever what struck you in the first section nicole the gluten part really got to me because everyone i mean everyone knows someone who is now probably gluten-free and the facts about gluten and some of the things that you talked about really struck me and i just loved it and it it is part of that whole affluent thing that you have the choice to do this yeah, that's uh, part of the fad sphere and finickiness is that it became a, a fad to uh, be anti-gluten. And now it almost has morphed into a fear where then there's people that say things like, well, if if, I, if she has gluten, she might die. I'm like, well, is she truly got celiac disease? Because uh, the university in Italy, a prestigious university in Italy, did a research because obviously they love pasta in Italy and concluded that 86% of the people who said they were gluten intolerant could digest gluten with absolutely no side effects whatsoever. So there you are. Uh, eat your eat your wheat-based, oat-based cereal, rye-based cereal, and and have at it. Second section is food fights. Nicole, <laughs> you and I both wondered, and we restructured stuff. We were going to start off talking about farming. And right. we said, no, no, let's not start at the beginning. Let's, you know, a great movie doesn't start once upon a time, right. always. Sometimes they pick up in the middle. We picked up in the middle with fads, fear, and finickiness, and then we talked about food fights before we ever got to farming and farmers. 
What do you think about food fights? Do you think I'm on to something? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that, that you and I had talked about is how is the control and people, how people like to control other people in some ways. And then they're very angry if you try to control them and others. So they don't want you to tell them what to do yet. We have people like um, mayors who will tell us exactly what to do and what we can eat and what we can and can't do. Yeah. And so for years, if you've been to one of my audiences, there's a chance maybe you were because you're listening to the business of ag podcast. Uh, and my audience uh, members would know that for the last several years, since 2013, in fact, I've been talking about Michael Bloomberg, the mayor, of, former mayor of New York City, who's now running for president. And he instituted a, a soda, uh, a soda limit, if you will, you could not get more than 16 ounces of soft drink in New York City. And I, I, my ag crowds are like, why, why are you telling about this? And I said, I don't think you've got the big picture here. The big picture is there are folks that want to control your consumption. And that is a food fight. That's a very, it's a, you know, you can call it food policing, which that is. But there's a lot of fights that we need to take on in agriculture. And we know about the Humane Society. We know about PETA. But I think some of the other ones almost glide by us. You know, like uh, the the control over soda, the control over quantity, and now Meatless Mondays in New York City. Absolutely. And when we talked about Meatless Mondays and and how people want to control what you're eating, um, it's what are they going to control next? You know, how far is this going to go is kind of where we thought. And then when we uh, one of my other favorite things in food fights had to do with the dietary guidelines. And one of the um, food pyramid or one of the things, what did you tell me was the bottom part of one of those guidelines? Yeah, it's one of my all-time favorite things also. And uh, honestly, you should buy this book just for the section called The Dietary Guidelines for Americans. So the United States government started telling people what to eat or recommend making recommendations in the early 1900s. And they were almost sensible back then. It was like, you know, a, a nation of poorer people. They're saying, here's how to get well-nourished, uh, affordably, etc. But then they started doing charts graphs. And if you are, have children, even if you don't, you probably know your kid goes to school and comes home now with the my plate. Uh, my plate is like the eighth iteration of this because we've had charts and graphs and pyramids. But my favorite one was released in 1943 called the basic seven. And it was the basic seven food groups. And it, it's got one category that I'm absolutely in love with is just butter. One group number seven is just butter. So, I mean, by God, 1943, they had seven food groups and one of them was just r regular old butter. And then at the bottom, it says, in addition to the basic seven, eat any other foods you want. So I find that in 1943, we were a, a more fit and apparently a more practical nation because uh, seven categories, one of them is butter and then whatever else you want, go ahead and have it. Right. But the eat what you want at the bottom, just it's hilarious. Yeah. So uh, that's that's one of my favorites, too. Moving on. Section number three, food forward. What's a highlight out of food forward? I I would say, uh, of course, I talk a little bit about how bad ag is at fighting or at least comprehending mm -hmm. the forces against us. But then uh, what did you like in that section? Um, it's most of the things I liked is um, it's all about. Everything's got to be grass-fed. Everything's got to be... Um, yeah, we talk about adjectives that sell. Correct. We talk about those kinds of things. But, but I want to know how my food is raised. That's that's the part that, that I think is quite funny because most people have never been on a farm. Uh-huh. 
and and it's hard for folks in the business of agriculture to comprehend that. But we're talking about people that truly have not they've not only not raised a and produced a calorie of food, they've actually they're they say they've been to a farm because they went to a straw maze and a pumpkin patch once. Yep. Um, when I looked at that uh, section, um, something that my listeners would like, and you just heard me, Nicole, explain this to two people yesterday. Uh, you'll like this um, if you're if you're listening along here, saying, "What are you talking about?" We had two people that are affluent people, affluent people the, from the suburbs uh, of Indiana, which is an agricultural state, uh, visiting with us, and they said some things that were just absolutely ridiculous and not factual food statements. And then they talked about their daughter that's a vegan, and I said that that's a symptom of an affluent country because nobody in a third world country where folks are starving is generally opting to be vegan. They're just trying like hell to get fed. Some interesting stuff in that section is about money and meat. Mm -hmm. The United States of America leads the world in meat consumption at 220 pounds per American, and that's 30 pounds more than it was 50 years ago. Speaking of 50 years ago, 50 years ago, Earth had about half the population it does now, around three and a half to four billion people versus 7.6 billion people now. We eat five times the amount of meat in, on Earth now as we did 50 years ago. Our population has doubled. Meat consumption has five times itself. What's that tell you and me? That we're not trending toward a vegan world anytime soon, as much as some of our friends might believe that it's the case. And I don't care if people want to be vegan. I just find it interesting that they want to force 95% of the population to adhere to their beliefs. That's what we talk about when we talk about food forward. What else, Nicole? The other thing that I liked that you talked about, and quite frankly, was that um, people in agriculture and farmers don't do a really good job of defending themselves when when things are brought up and when they talk about GMOs and, and that ag doesn't really defend itself well. Yeah, we tend to get um, sideways, uh, shall we say, um, very easily. It's almost like, um, uh, yeah, I'm going to attack you, attack you, attack you, and then tell you to focus on this. Uh, is there like an old thing with the stooges? You focus on the finger over here while I'm uh, boxing your ears over <laughs> right. here. Agriculture gets uh, gets sort of waylaid and distracted on what the real argument is, and we tend to not understand the motivation of our detractors. Uh, one thing I point out in the book is that cause groups are an industry. Uh, we think, oh, well, they're crazy. They want to, they want to, you know, put my agriculture, they want to put my chicken farm out of business. Cause groups actually are fundraising groups, and first and foremost, and we tend to not understand that. It's really about money. If the humane side of the United States doesn't fight us, they also then lose their funding. They lose their funding because the people that give them donations, believe that they're doing so for some greater good. So it becomes their industry is to raise funds and to do fundraising for them. They have to keep the fight perpetuated. They absolutely do. And they want there to be a constant fight. So if something does go away and then they find something new, something new pops up. So there's, they've always got a cause because if they don't, then they don't make money. They don't have jobs. There you go. And nothing makes a not for profit societal activist cause group person more capitalistic than realizing they've got to fight for their job. And they do that by perpetuating the food fight. Mm -hmm. Section four, we talk about farming. All my buddies now are listening to this podcast saying it's about time you get to farming. You know, I was going to, start with it but we decided nope it's better to talk about what the marketplace looks like and the consumer looks like and then we'll get around to telling you how this whole thing came together very proudly i talk about my own farm background 
and also, more importantly, about what agriculture has done for humanity. In the United States of America, we have 33 times the number of people that we did 200 years ago. We've gone from 9.6 million people in the year 1820 to 330 million people today. 33 times the number of people, and we have, for the first time ever, in the last 100 years, we've created food surpluses. That is an accomplishment, as I talk about when I talk about farming. What struck you in the section on farming? My favorite part of the section on farming is the myth of yesteryear, and uh, the good old days might not have been so good. Yeah, just had another consumer that kind of approached about something like that, about, uh, is it true they're doing this, or is it true they're doing that? And, 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 you know, back in the old days, and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. First off, you weren't alive in the old days, and secondly, I've been closer to it. The myth of yesteryear is something that all of us in the business of agriculture have heard, where the consumer wants to believe that there was this wholesome time with old McDonald and the lovely little barefoot children and the cow Bessie was out grazing. And what do I point out in the book? Sometimes the reality is that Bessie uh, probably there was something wrong with Bessie. You were lucky if your kids lived yeah. long enough that, you know, Pa and Ma weren't so happy about what they were doing. They were breaking their backs and getting everything done. And, and there were diseases and things that were going on every day. Yeah, the idea that somehow uh, there was this wonderful, wholesome time of yesteryear on the farm is really needs to be put in perspective. Because while certainly um, there were some things that were different, it doesn't mean different doesn't mean better. Uh, you know, we had we had uh, food shortages. We had poor, you know, on my in my farm uh, in Huntington, Indiana, we have a family graveyard and uh, they did not live to be they lived older than most. But there's also two to three children that are buried out there. So this idea that things were wholesome and better on the farm in the old days, uh, we know better. Talked about farmers. That's section five. We talked about farmers, and I laid out some some pretty compelling numbers. And some of it, actually, I think my farmer friends will already understand it, but reading it will strike them differently. That only only one percent of us farm in the United States of America, but that's true throughout all of the developed world. Almost nobody farms in developed, well-off, affluent countries. And it's not because we find them or get rid of them. It's because one has led to the other. That farmers, through technological and innovative uh, adaptation, have made it so that they don't have to be as populous. Whereas in third world countries, you got 80% of the country that farms in Central Africa Republic or the country of Chad. And they're also starving. What struck you about farmers? I like the the numbers were just crazy to me how things are changing in the the now we have, you know, more farmers but less food and and how the how those numbers worked out. Yeah, mostly in third world countries they have a lot more farmers but they don't have more food. So there's an, an inverse correlation as they say in in statistics and math where uh, the less farmers a country tends to have uh, less country a country less the farmers a country has the more food and money the country tends to have. So then speaking of money and food, section ship, section six is about cheap food. You know, I've been in this industry for 50 years, and when I was a little boy, I went to meetings, and there'd be a speaker at the Dairy Herd Improvement Association, or maybe the local equipment dealer, or any Farm Bureau event, and they'd talk about the, they'd just praise this notion of cheap food, how amazing it was that we had food that was so cheap, 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 cheap. And on the way home, or on the way to that meeting, in the station wagon with my parents, 
my mom or dad would be bitching about how paltry the milk check was, <laughs> that we were barely getting by and the milk check wasn't big enough. And then at this meeting, we'd be hearing about the, the wonders of cheap food. And as a little boy, I thought, um, does anybody besides me not see that there's the issue? We preach the value of cheap food and then we complain that our milk check isn't big enough. Um, doesn't one go hand in hand right. with the other? <laughs> So uh, that section, we talk about the issues with cheap food and why it exists and, and what, um, you know, what the problems are with that. Do anything strike you in that section? What the talking about the food waste and just how much food we waste and, and where that goes and, and just thinking of when we talk about the third world countries, another thing, and we have the ability to just throw things away and just the food waste yeah, food waste is indeed a symptom of cheap food. You know, let's face it, if you, in the United States, we spend 6.4% of our gross income on food. That's the number, 6.4% of gross. Uh, that's about, that's the cheapest in the world. If you were spending 60% of your income on food, you probably wouldn't be as willing to throw it down the garbage disposal. <laughs> and right. and of course, the people in agriculture are saying, "Well, what's what food waste isn't bad. It's good for us because we're selling the product." Yeah, but it makes us look really bad from the environmentalist eyes. And I think environmentalism is going to probably control what we do in agriculture to a much greater degree ten years from now than it does right now. Which brings me to section seven. Yes, the future of this wonderful business called agriculture. What struck you in the section seven about the future? One of the things that struck me was autonomous tractors. I really thought that was interesting and the way that tractors looked in the old days compared to what they look like now and what they can do now. And what's interesting is you're not even a farmer. I figured the farmers would get off on that because farm types really love machinery. I mean, they'll go and walk around uh, the Louisville Convention Center for three days in February looking at machinery. They love machinery. You're not a farmer, but you like the idea that we're going to get smaller and more automated and obviously smarter because that's been the nature of everything. It's gotten smaller, mm -hmm. smarter, cheaper, more autonomous, more automated, more easily used. That's what's probably going to happen. That's also, it was interesting to me because I think your average person does ha has no idea how much those tractors go for and how much money farmers have to put in to that machinery and why they're so interested in that machinery. Yeah, so you talk about that, and I, I do. I do point out in there in the in the book Food Fear. I talk about uh, the average uh, home in the United States. The according to Zillow, the average resale of a home, not a new home, but a you know, basic house that's for sale right now, it's like two hundred forty thousand dollars. And of course, we know that'll get you your average run of the mill two hundred forty horse, uh, two hundred horse tractor. You know, it's it's remarkable what the equipment costs. I talk about the future. I also talk about merging of methods and, and mm -hmm. everything coming together in food production, which I'm really excited about. But then I also point out that we're still going to have the fights and we've got the fight over control. And one of my big compelling points there is it's not going to be a matter of production. Our future is not going to be of scarcity. We've got food production down. And uh, one of the things that agriculture is always gone with is we got to keep making more food because there'll be more people and we've not had a problem creating surpluses of the 800 million starving people on earth right now it's not because we don't have the quantity to feed them it's because of political social uh, uh, issues economics too so I look at what the future is and I think it's going to become more about specialized and value-added and uh, us understanding 
the di- dilemma and the debate that we're in. Anything strike you along those lines? Uh, the one thing is that um, for a smaller farmer, really finding a niche market, that that was really interesting to me. And in that if you want to survive as a farmer, as a small farmer, you really need to find a niche. And then, of course, we talk about from the consumer standpoint, I think the future is good as it's ever been. I mean, the consumer in the future can get anything they want. And we've got a middle class uh, being created the world over. And those people are eating better. So I believe that in the business of agriculture, from our standpoint, we've got a rising consumer throughout the world that's eating better. And we're just going to get past our whole concept about produce, 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 quantity, mm-hmm. quantity, quantity, and realize, yeah, we got the quantity thing kind of handled now. Let's go over here and figure out what we can do to create the specialty product. Um, I also talk about, I know that some of my listeners think I'm anti-organic. I'm not anti-organic by any means. I've got a whole chapter devoted to organic growth. That sector continues to grow, and right now it's growing at two and a half times the rate of conventional food consumption. Uh, that's going to continue. Um, I see a future where we have an increased weaponization and politicization of mm-hmm. food because it seems to be one of those things that's actually worsened. When food is plentiful, it's not about who gets the, the crumbs, it's about who controls. And I see that continuing because it seems as though our nation is so much more polarized and uh, politically, they're also polarized at the dinner table. Absolutely. And another one of the things that... Um, I kept thinking throughout the entire book was you continually point out that agriculture is a business and you're not out to kill people. That would be bad for business. <laughs> I love that because I mean, people don't really think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Is it true? The farmers are spraying stuff on there that are going <laughs> to poison my kids. Well, that, that'd be, that Oh, that'd be pretty short-sighted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I'm excited about uh, Nicole Hahn is my guest here. She was the first read, my um, my first edit, and my first feedback and clarifier of the book Food Fear. So I'm excited about Food Fear. I told you, more excited than winning the 1974 tricycle <laughs> race, more excited than when I got three prized eggs in the Easter egg hunt. I might even go so far as to say I'm more excited, more excited than I was when I got my driver's license, but that would be a lie because oh. the driver's license was big. Of course, like most farm kids, I'd already been driving for about nine years <laughs> right. when I got my driver's license. <laughs> Final thoughts. What do you got for me? I really think this is a book for everyone. I really do. This is not a farm book. This is not a business book. This is an everyone book. This is just about food in general. So it really is a read for everyone. I, and not even age wise. I think I'm going to give one of these to my son. You know, he's 16. And I think this is great stuff for him, too. Yeah. And, so, he's, and he's, of course, hearing a lot of stuff. And we know the younger generation right. is more impacted by things. And you've got uh, a certain political group that uh, appeals to that. And then there's there's the misinformation. Yeah. I mean, my intents were very, very true, of course. Uh, you know, the subtitle, why you should celebrate eating. Um, and, and I think that that's the thing is that we've lost sight of the fact that um, we don't need to make this a fearful arrangement. And we're being manip- we're being manipulated by politicians and cause uh, groups and cause groups that have an activist uh, agenda. And they've weaponized and politicized your dinner table. What else? Anything? It's just, it's one of my favorite things. I know you're thinking, going to think it's silly, but the cover of this book is phenomenal. (laughs) I just love how this book looks.
So you're sitting there listening to this, and you're saying, "What's it look like, Damien?" Well, well, you can check it out on social media. But it's it's uh, the idea was it's a it's a tomato being held in a person's hand, and then the shadow put behind is a scary monster. Because I thought that's brilliant. My de- my design gal Angie uh, at IBA Design and Graphics created this for me. And I thought that's brilliant because I didn't give her a lot of direction. And I thought, what's more innocuous than a tomato? It's just it's just a piece of produce, people. Right. And what do we do? We turn it into something frightening, and we shouldn't. Her name is Nicole Hahn. My name is Damian Mason. Closing thought? Read the book. Buy yeah. the book. Go to DamianMason.com and get the book. I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you for being here, and thank you for joining me. It's about food fear. And if you don't buy it, that's okay. We're still friends, but I really would i would like to see you do it because I think you've got someone in your life that can benefit from it. Till next time, it's the business of agriculture.